Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Hello and welcome back to episode 130 of the Canadian Real Estate Investor. And today we're talking about worst case scenarios and how they might not even be able to fix our problems anyways. Fun. Uh, sounds like a very positive episode, I guess. Uh, before we begin, course is we're taking registrations for next year, realestateinvestingcourse.ca. Uh, we have meetups October 10th and November 14th, uh, realestatemeetups.ca. If you type into your browser or there's a link to the meetup.com in the show notes, check out our merch as well and sign up for the newsletter. All of the links in the show notes are there to do those things. And the charts that we're discussing today, we'll be posting in the newsletter if you want to review them. By the way, I am Nick Hill, real estate investor, uh, mortgage broker, and lucky enough to be co-host of this podcast. And what's your name again? Daniel Foch, real estate broker and investor. There we go. And today we are going to be looking at uh, a bunch of different things, but we're going to be starting off with a report by author Des Jardins in providing his economic Your viewpoint. French just keeps getting better and better. Is that not what it is? Who is it? Desjardins, Desjardins. economic viewpoint. There um, we go. It says, how low can pro- prices go in TO? Very, uh, it sounds like Dr. Seuss wrote it actually, but um, even a severe recession likely won't make housing affordable in Toronto. So after it starts by saying, after years of being priced out of the market, many prospective Toronto home buyers now sense an opening with a recession looming. Hmm. But even in the direst of economic scenarios, they don't see affordability returning to Canada's largest city anytime soon. So their worst case scenario is a 1990s style Ontario recession that would drive the average Toronto home values $185,000 or 16% below current levels by the end of next year. But it also says in that scenario, plus strong construction. So this is saying basically if we saw that, and if you remember, if you've been following us since episode number one, uh, I guess technically episode number two, we discussed these cycles and we're going to actually do a recap on them in today's episode. But one of the components that we didn't really think of was whether or not you could see a lot of supply during a recession. And so remember that plus strong construction piece, because we're going to revisit it once we finish reading this page of the report. By Q4 of 2025, prices would sit 340,000 or 30% lower than in July of 2023. Yet, Even if that improbable outcome were to materialize within the next three years, it would only bring Toronto's home prices, uh, price per capita to disposable income ratio back to the still stretched late 2015 levels. So they have a graph that basically shows like today as a starting point and, and then four different potential outcomes. And then there's a, there's a line that shows, um, what that long-term average affordability as a price to income would be. And uh, anyway, they go on to say such a significant price decline could likely only come at a massive economic and social cost, which obviously policymakers are going to make an effort to avoid, but who knows whether or not they actually can. And we're going to discuss that a little bit today. Compared to their base case Ontario forecast, a 1990s style recession would result in a more than $35 billion reduction in employment income and almost half a million total job losses by Q4 of 2025. 
Wow, you know, this makes me think of that episode we did a while back, Dan, Survive Until 2025. Yeah. 2025 seems Sam, to be the- uh, Late Sam Zell, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. They, and it's funny, it is always like the some, the blank fives, because it was like, well, I think the Jehovah's Witnesses was, was at 75. I think that's where that came from, stay alive till, was it 75? I don't know. Anyway, and then <laughs> Sam Zell did the 90s recession was yeah. stay, staying alive till 95. Till 95. Well, 30 years later, we're back to- uh, Back to Stay alive till 25, yeah. yeah. So a more bullish house price trajectory is, of course, also possible. Their more optimistic scenarios for current homeowners see persistently strong growth and limited numbers of new listing prices above the February 2022 peak, and uh, that's projected by early 2025. So their analysis shows the difficult starting position for both first-time homebuyers and policymakers who are trying to improve housing affordability. Um, so plans to boost the supply of affordable housing can't fall short, they say. It's, it's just not an option. And that's, and that's something we're going to talk about today because Canada actually has a really rich history of building affordable housing. And, um, and I think we're starting to see the government get serious about housing creation and rental housing creation. And my, th- I, I guess my question is like, could we see a combination of strong construction and a recession? But anyway. Yeah. I mean, I just, before I go on here, that, that last line plans to boost the supply of affordable housing can't fall short. I mean, that is going to be very, very difficult to accomplish uh, no matter what way you look at it. Anyways, the report by Desjardins goes on to say all levels of government in the private sector have to work together to address the Herculean challenges of adequately increasing new home building. Toronto and indeed Canada's status as a welcoming and prosperous place to live depends on it. So, Dan, do you think that their worst case scenario is likely? Yeah, it's it's such a good question. And, and this part is really kind of fascinating to me because I hadn't really thought about how a recession alone couldn't really kill house prices in Canada, it would require a lot of supply or it could in some scenario require a lot of supply. And I guess the question is whether or not we could actually see mass construction during a recession. You know, typically we're inclined to immediately think recession means a decline in productivity. But I think maybe the alternative case could exist. I could actually see this happening as purpose-built rental is really almost becoming a make-work project where, you know, developers are being given really, really good credit terms. Um, And we're seeing a huge effort from the government to ramp up rental housing, like we just discussed in a recent episode about the new $10 billion or $20 billion worth of mortgage-backed securities for the CMHC financing. Um, If I'm a policymaker, I'd absolutely be using purpose-built rental as a make-work project to try and keep the economy moving during a recession while easing the housing crisis. The challenge is that the government is frankly run out of money and the Canada five-year bond yield is at like 4.5% today. And so now they're also spending a record amounts on interest payments. But let's assume that they have enough money to make a work work project or even if they figure out how to turn it into a revenue stream for the government, which seems to be one of the things that's happening with the CMHC programs. And, you know, giving that opening that door for the private sector to do its work, making it compelling for the private sector to do its work, which we're going to talk about a lot in the context of, I think, 70s and 80s housing programs um, that were really celebrated by developers. 
Yeah, I mean, before I go on here, I do. I just want to touch on on the government, right? We've we've brought them up before, in, in this in the fiscal responsibility and duties that they have compared to the Bank of Canada, which of course has the monetary policy. You know, the government does. Like, I mean, Dan, what was that stat with the Ottawa vacancy rate? Like, there's more vacant space in Ottawa, vacant office, vacant government office space in Ottawa. Like, I mean, little things like that will will help boost the economy if you just even put government workers back to work in the office. I also agree. I think make work projects uh, moving into a recession. There's no better time. So a make work project, you know, they've been introduced through uh, throughout periods of high unemployment and they provide substitutes for regular jobs and this is a method of stimulating the economy a make work job is a job that is created and maintained at a cost not offset by the job's fulfillment usually having little or no immediate financial benefit such roles can be said to exist for economic or social political reasons, for example, to simplify to provide work experience or maintain a ceremonial function. So the most famous example is the Great Depression. Um, as part of the New Deal in the U.S., the Civil Works Administration, or CWA, was created in 1933 as basically a stopgap measure to boost economic relief provided by the emergency le- relief and, and public works administration. At its peak, the CWA employed like 4.2 million people. And also, it is kind of funny. I I could swear that somebody mentioned to me that a bunch of the brutalist architecture in Canada was actually a result of a make work effort in the 60s and 70s to stimulate the Canadian economy and the construction industry and also use domestic concrete materials to build public sector buildings on the cheap like they were extremely cost effective pure concrete buildings but I either must have made that up or it's a very abstract theory because I couldn't find any information about it but somebody I do recall somebody far smarter than me telling me that I just can't remember who um and that's that's why I like all of those university buildings are brutalist architecture and and I see you smirking now because I know you can't wait to dictionary brutalist architecture it would be brutal if I didn't um, so brutalist architecture is a style of building design developed in the 1950s in the United Kingdom following World War II. With an emphasis on construction and raw materials, the aesthetic evolved as a reconstruction efforts were underway in the post-war era. If modernism is about architecture being honest, brutalism design is about architecture being brutally honest. Forms are simple as can be, and the materials are stripped as bare and raw as possible. And that is quoted by Gettys Ulinakas, who is the principal of Gettys Ulinakas Architects. And I'm sorry, Gettys, because I'm probably pronouncing that horribly totally wrong. Totally wrong, for sure. <laughs> it's all right, though. That's the, part of your charm. Yeah, there we go. The, the term brutalism is often attributed as an emerging uh, from the French word Beton or brute, meaning raw concrete. Many Swedish architects, including Hans Asplund for, uh, oh, sorry, many credit Swiss, Swedish architect Hans Asplund for uh, coining the term when describing Villa Goth, a brick residential building in 1949. So there's some good examples of brutalist architecture around Canada. Um, and, and it kind of, the era that you'll see and the, and the fact that they're in a lot of cases public sector buildings will kind of tell the story that it could have been a make work project that supports the thesis that I can't find any evidence of that I just mentioned. But Habitat 67, probably the most famous example in Montreal, 
Yeah, or and uh, Robarts Library in downtown Toronto. That's part of the UFT campus. Yeah, I feel like half of these could probably end up on that subreddit, like r slash evil buildings. But, uh, but anyway, um, University of Guelph campus, where we both went, has a, has a bunch. Yeah. Um, there are so many good ones. Uh, Princess of Wales Northern Heritage Center in Yellowknife, Dalhousie Art Center, San- Stanley A. Milner Library in Edmonton, as well as the University of Alberta Faculty of Law in Edmonton, uh, the Macmillan Bladell Building in Vancouver, Confederation Center of the Arts in PEI, Brantford City Hall, and the Public Safety Building in Winnipeg. Well, there you go. You're literally just listing buildings all across the country to score brownie points with the audience and make our show a little more relatable and coast-to-coast, aren't you? Absolutely. I understood the assignment. And on that note, while we're still in Manitoba, (laughs) the Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre, the Royal MTC, is Canada's oldest English-language regional theatre. And fun fact, next to Stratford and Shaw Festivals, it has the highest annual attendance of any other theatre in the country. Wow. Yeah, man. Did we just unlock architecture as a new topic on the show? Um, if you're listening, let us know if you want to hear more about this stuff because we can certainly pepper it in. Yeah, Dan and I have joked that uh, we got to start getting, but we don't know if you guys are interested in this. I, I honestly, it's one of the reasons I I used to want to be an architect. I, I I love it. I used to. Yeah, it's. I think it is one of the the most enjoyable parts about the real estate asset is like the ability to exercise some creativity. Beyond the brutalism as a potential example of a make-work project, uh, rental housing has a history of being a stimulus or make-work project. This is an article from the Tai. So it says, why can't we build like it's the 1970s? Between 1973 and 1994, Canada built 16,000 affordable homes per year. Why can't we do that now? It says they built or acquired 16,000 nonprofit or cooperative homes every year. So between 1994 and the year 2016, that number dropped from 16,000 annually to just 1,500 homes a year, thanks to a decision made by the federal liberals to get out of funding affordable housing. Instead, the responsibility was downloaded to the provinces with mixed results. It is interesting because like you think, when you think about affordable housing, I would just naturally think more about um, liberal policy, right? So the, like a lot of this research that I was doing surprised me. So the article goes on to say after the neck, after two decades of rising home prices and growing homelessness in 2017, the federal government finally announced it was getting back into housing, promised to spend $40 billion over the next decade. And I, I'm assuming that's the $40 billion that went into the CMHC fund that's now been topped up another $20 billion. But they're not actually spending it per se, they're lending it. Um the pace of building is still underwhelming, the article says, and com- especially when you compare it to 16,000 uh, per year that we're, we're seeing before. So they quote somebody named Brian Clifford, who's a, a program manager at uh, Community Housing Transformation Center, and he says, um, the, the figure is essentially what we used to do in one year is now what they're trying to do over the next five years. And this is crazy to me because it, like the economy is probably, well, the population is doubled or, or I think doubled in that period of time. Um, and their productivity and, and construction innovation and stuff like that. Like we should have made strides to be able to We're build more backwards. houses. Yeah, yeah. This is just ridiculous. So anyway, they, so Clifford uses this CMHC data, historical CMHC data to talk, uh, to show how much money Canada used to spend. And they compare it with this, this policy sh- shift that the article is describing in the 1990s that really got us obsessed with and emphasized individual home ownership. Um, and this is where you started to see 0% down, 40-year AMs, stuff like that, instead of funding affordable housing. And it's almost like the function of CMHC changed from really the National Housing Accord into subsidizing home ownership. 
so yeah, I mean, and it could have been response to the nineties downturn, which we're mm-hmm. going to get to, but anyway, uh, take me through the seventies and eighties. Yeah. So before the seventies and eighties nonprofit and co-op housing boom, Canada's historic affordable housing stock also included 205,000 units of public housing. And that was developed between 1964 and 1978. Then there were various incentive programs to build rental apartment buildings between 75 and 84. The Canada rental supply encouraged the construction of 382,000 units. In the 1980s, that shifted to an incentive program ended and developers turned to building more lucrative condo projects that, uh, that we're all very familiar with today. So the article finishes that segment by talking about how it, it's fascinating that even you know, that Brian Mulroney's 1980s conservative government in the era of that, you know, free market economics, um, they spent more money on affordable housing than the 1990s liberals, which was the John Critchen era. So then um, there's a couple more articles about this. So um, CBC did one, I think a lot of these came out in 2017 when that policy was being revisited, but this one was from recently um, from CBC in Halifax. And it says CMHC examines 1970s tax shelter as the agency seeks solutions to the rental crisis. So it says Canada's housing agency has reached back nearly five decades to examine a long abandoned tax shelter that was aimed at spurring the construction of apartment buildings as it analyzes how to deal with persistent undersupply of rental housing in the country. The federal liberal government recently announced it was immediately lifting the GST from the construction of the new rental apartments, a move developers have long called for. But internal records show that the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, CMHC, recently reviewed another kind of tax measure, one that was introduced in 1974 and ended in 1982, and which rewarded often wealthy professionals with tax tax deductions when they invested in housing. This is a quote, many housing stakeholders suggest that to promote investment in new rental construction and restore affordability, the federal government should reconsider the tax policies previously in place in the 1970s, particularly the MURB, M-U-R-B. And this is from a briefing note that was uh, sent to Housing Minister Sean Fraser and released under uh, his access to information laws. And of MERB, what we just mentioned, stands for multi-unit residential building. Great acronym, actually. MERB, yeah, that's a good a one. A good right one, there. for sure. The MERB scheme allowed investors to claim depreciation and other costs of an apartment building against unrelated income. Almost like kind of what you see in the U.S. with um, with interest uh, on your primary residence in, in some cases. So it was credited with encouraging the construction of about 195,000 units at a cost of $2.4 billion in foregone taxes, although the CMHC said there are some questions about the program's true influence. The CMHC noted that there was no affordability requirement. It also said that there were reports of many abuses, investors only buying buildings as tax shelters and a lack of oversight that in some cases led to poor construction. Some parts of the briefing note are redacted, and it's not clear whether they uh, support or are disapproving of the program or putting it back in some form. They declined to comment on this CBC article, but they note note that its taxation really isn't their business anyways. So since the elimination of that MERB program uh, in 1982, tax policy in relation to rental housing development has remained largely unchanged and current tax regulations are less favorable to rental investment than they have been historically, this briefing note said. Dan, what do you think about putting MERB on a shirt? That would be a good shirt, actually. 
Multi-unit residential building shirts or hats. I love it. A spokesperson for the Office of the Federal Housing Minister said in an email to Fraser, uh, that is, again, our housing minister, uh, he's the MP for Nova Scotia and Central Nova Scotia, and that, but did not indicate whether some form of MERB program was being reconsidered. That briefing note said that up to 100,000 rental units a year were being built during the late 1960s and early 1970s, and the number that is still higher than the level today, despite the housing crisis in cities across the country. I feel like we're just not at a point where the government can consider reducing taxes. Like they just have, they need the revenue too badly. So anyway, in a report published September 13th um, that we've mentioned on the show quite a few times here already, um, CMHC said that urgent action was required to increase housing supply. And it talks about the shortfall of 3.5 million on top of what's already being built to get back to affordable housing. So the article does use some cool real life examples as well. And because it's CBC Halifax, they're total beauties from the Halifax market. So a gentleman by the name of Peter Pauly, a developer in Halifax, said the MERB scheme was used to construct a significant number of apartment buildings in the 1970s, although he doesn't believe it's a solution for today's supply issues. Mike Burgess, a Dartmouth, Nova Scotia landlord who owns 77 rental units spread over 11 buildings, said rising insurance costs, power rates, and property taxes means it's struggling to even break even, quote, let alone be worried after about making a uh, taxable profit. He said various levels of government should be paying more attention to helping mom and pop landlords, which he worries are being squeezed out in favor of large operators like real estate investment trusts. Yeah. So this one's interesting to me because I think that there's two things happening, right? Where you have CMHC really trying to incentivize at scale development and you hear about like dream REIT uh, now committing to building 5,000 residential units. Purpose-built rentals, yeah. But, you know, I don't think that the housing crisis can be solved without, as rehousing.ca calls it, a citizen developer mm-hmm. solution or a DIY density solution. And it's not that, like, there is there is no silver bullet. We need we need lots of bullets at this point. <laughs> we need a couple machines. I don't care what they're made out of. Yeah. But, but uh, and so... I it's I think that the comment from Mike Burgess is is an interesting one because I think that um, mom and pop investors r- routinely demonize, um, especially with the housing crisis and taking away from taking away a lot of home ownership, um, really are going to need to play a role. And I think a big piece of that is moving away from speculative real estate investment, which comes from interest rates declining ad nauseum, um, to you know how. Uh, Housing creation. Excess demand should lead to housing creation. If we have too many people who want to buy too many houses, we should be building more houses. You know what I mean? To meet that demand. Um, Anyway, back to the article. A 1981 report for the CMHC found that the MERB scheme attracted many private investors to rental housing, and it was widely used by professionals and other high-income individuals to reduce income taxes on their employment earnings. Uh, I guess one of the other challenges, we don't have a ton of those people anymore, right? Like. We've, we've lost a lot of them. So there's also another great article on uh, policyoptions.ca by Greg Sutton that summarizes the history of Canadian public housing investment. That's all in his book, Still Renovating a History of Canadian Social Housing Policy. It's an amazing name, by the way. It reminds me of uh, Canadian road construction. I fully bought a copy of that book when I came across it doing this research just because of the name. Like, and it's <laughs> sick. It looks just like a, I don't know, like a construction pylon just says still renovating. Love it. 
Yeah, but he says basically that federal, he, he really gives a great succinct history lesson here. So federal leadership created and sustained Canada's affordable housing system at key points in our history. Uh, they built a lot of war worker housing in the 1940s. So this is where you're seeing that those wartime bungalows, some social housing in the 1950s. But the serious effort started in 1964, the same Pearson liberal government that gave Canadians universal Medicare and the Quebec uh, or Canada Quebec pension plan uh, funded and created serious social housing program. In the 1970s, the federal government led again, shifting to a sustainable mixed income and community-based approach. And affordable housing was not a partisan matter. The key partner in the 1960s was the conservative-ruled Ontario. The 1970s programs had support across the spectrum, and the Maroonie conservatives' flexible federalism sustained the system in the 1980s. Federal retrenchment and uh, devolution in the 1990s created challenges we face today, and federally-led housing initiatives between 2002 and 2015 softened the impact without reversing it. That the way he just covered an entire decade in wow. like a paragraph, Greg so Sutton. succinctly, I think he writes about this stuff. <laughs> so he goes on to say in this article, a more cautionary lesson of history is about fiscal conditions. Making affordable housing a priority is the easiest when tax revenue growth is strong. This was evident in a positive way in the late 60s and 70s and in a negative way in the 90s. Housing is expensive. A new rental unit in urban Canada costs about $200,000 and Canadian government spend as much on rent geared to income, RGI, subsidies as on guaranteed income supplement. But governments can debt finance housing and pay off an investment over time, as households do. And historically, this is how the central element of social housing policy. The federal government did not include loan financing in the housing initiatives of twenty of 2002-2015, but its 2017 budget announcement signals that it is moving to make this uh, part of affordable housing policy once again. So that's really what we're what we're talking about here with this new CMHC program and whether or not it is, I mean, it doesn't have to be a make work project for the recession, like in quotation marks, but it is, this is economic stimulus that's geared towards housing and it's designed to be a win-win for the government, for uh, the housing crisis and to keep the economy rolling. And, and as he mentions, um, governments can debt finance housing and pay off an investment over time. And that's, that's a key thing here because they're, the, the governments are the issuers or insurers of the debt through the mortgage-backed security program and through the CMHC. So he goes on to say, and I'm literally just reading this because this guy is so incredibly well-spoken on the topic. It's important to approach housing as a system. Affordable housing is not about intrepid local groups doing a project here or there with dis disjointed layers of public funding at different periods. It's about implementing policies to sustain a system of capital funding, mortgages, and rent subsidies, plus support services for people with disabilities on a scale that makes a difference. In a heyday of Canadian social housing from 1965 to 1990, 10% of total housing production was nonprofit, public, or cooperative. And cooperatives have basically disappeared at this point. today. This magnitude was sufficient to house half of the lowest income segment of the roughly 170,000 households added to Canada each year, or added in Canada each year give the people with the low incomes decent options in the same neighborhoods as middle-class Canadians lived in, and by the 1980s, housed many homeless people. The program initiatives that the federal government has now signaled for its national housing strategy fall far short of a return to the heyday, but they nudge it back in that direction, he says. So I think we've kind of answered the question of whether or not we could see extreme levels of construction, like Desjardins said, would be necessary on, on top of a 
large recession. And and I I tend to really trust this guy who just said that, you know, it's just going to kind of nudge it in the direction. Um, so, you know, if we're going with Greg Sutton, it's probably, we're not going to return to the heyday. We're not going to see that scale, but we're getting closer. And maybe if we see a shift in government or them really warring over this in the next election, it could get further that way. But the next piece of that question is how bad of a recession we see. And this is a bit of a throwback to episode one. So let's revisit that. Are we at the end of a real estate cycle? This is a lot of this is basically just a summarization of the very first episode uh, that we did on the podcast. So for those of you who have been with us for the whole time, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here. And we're just going to throw it back to that because we want to see if some of our assumptions were correct. And if you haven't listened to episode one, if you're just joining us, uh, we'd appreciate if you went all the way back to the beginning of the catalog because we try and keep it all time-tested and and true advice throughout the show. So, Nick. It's hard to find a good story about Canadian real estate right now. Both sales and house prices are down, but among the doom and gloom, there lies a little bit of a silver lining. We've been here before. We've survived it and we will survive it again. Canadian real estate has seen big downturns before in varying degrees of magnitude. The last time we saw a major cyclical event in Canada was in the 1990s. This era of recession was preceded by massive speculation and brought Canadian real estate to lows severe enough to permanently dissuade many baby boomers from even wanting to invest in real estate after that. If you study economic history, you'll notice a pattern emerging, specifically a cyclical pattern that can be seen in certain assets. Cycles that have been ongoing for centuries and have been fueled by debt. Based on that simple observation, every ongoing economic trend can be better understood. And this is why I'm hoping that reviewing these previous economic cycles will help explain what's happening in Canada, create comfort for the average homebuyer investor. If you think specifically about the 90s correction, many many millennials' parents owned real estate through that era and and most still own their home today. They were able to financially recover from it. So it's not like that meme of the guy from Tiger King or whatever, where he's like, I will never financially recover from this. So let's look back at the last three cycles in Canadian real estate and the lessons that they may hold for 2023 and beyond. Okay, so 1980s. In 81, the CPI was an astounding 12.47%. That's inflation. The rate had been consistently rising since 1976. Over that period, the Bank of Canada tripled the prime rate of interest. Uh, or their overnight rate of interest. The situation made housing extremely unaffordable across the country. In fact, the average mortgage rate in the 1980s was comparable to a credit card rate today, 19.7%. However, 1981 marked the peak for everything. We were officially in recession from the second half of that year. Disinflation set in and encouraged the Bank of Canada to start rapidly cutting interest rates. Meanwhile, house prices peaked in the third quarter of 1981 and would drift 30% to 50% lower until the fourth quarter of 1984. So the key lesson here is that rapid rate hikes successfully broke the back of inflation. House prices didn't drop until disinflation set in. A little bit different than what we're seeing today, but it kind of gives you an idea of the timeline. It also gives you an idea of the timeline uh, that they of what it took for them to cut. So because again, everybody's praying for rate cuts, be careful what you wish for because before rate cuts comes disinflation and a recession. I think 1989 was was one of the better years in in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, the mirror, we're making good wine back there. And and good people. I don't know any of them. <laughs> now let's move on to the 1990s. In 1991, CPI inflation was 5.6%. That was the highest rate in seven years. 
Yet again, the Bank of Canada deployed its most potent tool, rate hikes. So original, these guys. <laughs> it's worth noting that inflation surged from 3.9% in 1986 to 5.6% in 1991. But the prime rate was doubled over this period as well. Policymakers, it seems, had learned their lesson from previous cycles and decided to be more aggressive this time around. Yet again, the peak of inflation and interest rates marked the peak for real estate prices. House prices across Canada fell 40 to 50% from 1989 to 1996. The key lesson from here is front-loading interest rate hikes capped inflation sooner and caused a deeper dip in house prices. It is interesting too because it does feel like you did see a bit of a like rates were still climbing and inflation was still climbing. So the lag effect um, was very evident during that period of time. Yeah. Now we've spoken before about, you know, the central bank and the government and their role in trying to curb a recession. And sometimes, you know, again, this is very hard because again, as Dan just said, all that data lags. So if you are working, if you're making decisions off data that's lagging, you have the opportunity to accidentally overshoot and this seems to be the case back in the 90s. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, when we, if we go back to our uh, aviation lesson in our previous episode, it's like having a fog there that ruins your depth perception, right? Mm -hmm. Like you just really, you are operating with improper information because we just don't have real time data. Yeah, exactly. Um, Okay, Dan. So take us to the most recent one that probably everyone can still remember, even though we seem to have very short memories when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. 2008. Yeah, so the GFC, 2008, um, it was an external shock from U.S. inflation and rates were not in an upward trend before the crisis, but the Federal Reserve cut interest rates sharply to deal with the crisis, which compelled the Bank of Canada to break through its rate floor too. By 2010, the prime rate in Canada was near 0%, and I think that was the first time that we saw an overnight rate of 0.25, which is what we just just saw again during COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, It helps to think of this period as a counter cycle. Instead of rapid inflation creating the need to raise interest rates and tame demand, an external shock had destroyed demand, which created deflation and, and convinced policymakers to lower rates. This event created the Canadian real estate boom that is just ending now. Like That was sort of when our addiction to cheap debt started um, because we realized that we could get away with it without destroying the Canadian dollar and the economy. In fact, actually, the Canadian dollar was stronger than the US dollar during that period of time because of the GFC. Um, So the average home price grew from 300K uh, in 2009 to like 750K today. That's a compounded annual growth rate of like 17.5% over 14 years. Yeah. So the key takeaway there is that rate cut, their rate cuts then created and, uh, and, prolonged and unsustainable housing boom. So let's bring it to today, 2023 and beyond. Today's downturn looks strikingly similar to traditional cycles we experienced that we just spoke about in the 80s and the 90s. There's an energy crisis and rising inflation. The Bank of Canada is deploying rate hikes in an effort to curb demand and tame that inflation and those inflationary bond yields. Based on our lessons from past cycles, it's likely that home prices will continue to descend until inflation has bottomed. This phase could take up to several years, especially given how elevated valuations were during the recent pandemic and you know the COVID boom. There's no guarantee that ongoing downturn will resemble what we've seen before, but so far the trend seems to hold up and it's worth keeping an eye on. It could present an opportunity for new buyers or for those looking to make a move 
on the housing ladder or in your investments? So very quickly before we wrap up here, RBC posted in July 2022 that, you know, that we're in the middle of a historic correction and they expected it to be worse than all of those previous corrections. And so far, they've been right. Um, they said with demand weakening significantly and affordability exceptionally stressed in parts of the country, they believed that prices will have to give and um, that the projected price drop would surpass prior corrections. And we already did see a record drop in price last year, January 20 or sorry, February 2022 to February 2023 was the largest drop we've ever seen in Canadian house prices uh, on on record. And so um Realistically, I think we're kind of in the middle of this counter cycle. It's, it's, I think, a little bit too late to ignore it and pretend that we're at the bottom and it's bullish again and whatever. Like, saw the huge price drop, seeing the recession right now, seeing bond yields rip, seeing inflation sustain. I mean, uh, the writing is on the wall. The question is, what are you going to do about it as an investor? And, and the reality is, this is, this is creating an opportunity. So, this is why I study cycles because. One, I want to, when I'm buying, I want to mitigate risk and understand what the worst case scenario would be. But number two is when I'm, um, when I'm waiting to buy or when I'm in acquisition mode, not, not buying something and trying to manage risk on the buy, but waiting and shopping. Um, I want to see, okay, what happened in the nineties? When can I expect the bottom to be? When can I expect the best prices to take place? When can I expect the best, uh, interest rates? Cause there's so many different factors to housing. Um, and we're starting to see more and more of these opportunities pop up as a result of this counter cycle taking place. Yeah, exactly, Dan. And, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's just really interesting to see. Um, we always talk about focusing on what you can control and all the stuff we just spoke about, you and I and everyone listening, even if we all banded together and decided to do something, we can't control this stuff. What we can control is understanding this and, and, you know, going back to these other recessions, looking at how consumer sentiment responded, looking at how house prices um, responded, and then developing your own thesis and kind of just, again, at the end of the day, plugging your ears and, and going forward. And again, you know, as we say, it's always a good time to buy a good deal. And it's always a bad time to buy a bad deal. Um, so I hope you guys got a ton of value out of today's episode. I just want to throw a little fun fact in here at the end, Dan. Um, cause if this is true, this is, this is pretty crazy. If all the skyscrapers under construction and proposed in Toronto get built, Toronto will have more skyscrapers than any city other than Hong Kong and Shenzhen in China. And yes, Toronto will actually have more skyscrapers than New York. I got to do some research on this to see if this is true. This is a, this is a tweet. I wonder if it would be a taller city though than New York. Cause I think you know that's what, I mean? what it is. Yeah. Well, like, no, I think there's more, like there's more skyscrapers. And then there's like, if you add all of the stories of every building in New York, as an example, like New York's one of the tallest cities, right? Uh, okay. So this I wonder is... how, cause Toronto doesn't build that tall because we're so obsessed with the CN tower and they don't, which yeah. I like, I actually think is the case. Like yeah. we don't see a lot of super talls in Toronto. Yeah. I know uh, the one um, pinnacle one right down on the bottom of Young Street is, is going back and forth with the city right now. I think they want 101 stories and the city's trying to cap them at 91. Right. you will be looking right into people having dinner at the CN Tower if that's the case. But yeah, uh, I mean, it has to happen eventually. You know, just because just that, I'm going to have to go down to New York soon and just, just check that out, make sure. 
Okay, do it. Let me know how it goes. Um, I think that's everything. This is a great episode. Really enjoyed it. Um, it was more abstract, obviously, and really just kind of like a history lesson on what we think we could see. And I really feel that policy is continuing to head in the direction that it's encouraging mom and pop investors like our friend from Halifax suggested. Um, we're seeing you know, them wanting to multi, wanting to allow us to multiplex at a municipal and provincial level. We're seeing CMHC money um, being encouraged to buy rental buildings on long-term um, amortizations and which present great cash flow terms, but also to build rental housing. And I think that we as investors, if we can start thinking about how we want to capitalize on the economic downturn and play a role in that excess construction, could actually have a really meaningful long-term impact on housing affordability and solving a lot of the social problems that we're seeing in Canada. Um, yeah. Yeah, well said, Dan. Hope everyone got a ton of value out of today. Check all the links in the show notes for more great stuff from uh, from the two of us, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks so much for listening. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group, license number 10317 Agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.